Welcome back, Passball Show on TR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli getting ready for uh, what is, you know, a, a, a great show going on with spring training and the whole thing. And obviously, while this show's playing, I'm actually down in spring training enjoying myself. Uh, we'll, like I'll be for the next week or so, watching a couple Mets games, hopefully get a couple interviews and more people to be part of the show as we move down into the near future. But um, first hour knocked out. We're going to j- definitely get into some topics here. And uh, we're going to start out World Baseball Classic. Um, you know, the semifinals are starting. Uh, you got the Dominican Republic playing against the team from uh, the Netherlands. And you got Puerto Rico against Japan. And I, I think, you know, for those Baseball Classic fans, the guys that are out there that kind of analyze the teams and stuff like that and are, and are talking about uh, what, what to expect, what not to expect, uh, there may be a couple surprises there. You know, you got a lot of people that believe in the talent of the USA team, and obviously they they went out there and put a good group of players together. But you got the team from Cuba. You got some other teams that uh, really ended up not in this position. But the Dominican Republic, a team that particularly the last time they had the Baseball Classic in 2009, they were a team that was very favored to win the whole thing. And they were able to put it together here, get themselves into the semifinals. I would assume that they're going to be favored against a team from the Netherlands. But don't count these guys out because they've been probably one of the best teams in the entire tournament as far as their level of play. And if they pull off the upset here, I think you got to consider Netherlands as a possibility to go out there and win the whole thing. So, you know, you got the other side where you got the Puerto Rican team against Japan. Japan, obviously, the two-time defending champion. They're going to be considered favorites until they're knocked off. And I think if, if you're going to play the odds and want to see which team is probably uh, favorited to be in the finals, I would expect a DR Japan final. But you never know. I mean, the Puerto Rican team has done a phenomenal job. They obviously got a lot of major league players, and I wouldn't rule out the team from the Netherlands. But I'm going to segue this into my my thought, and I kind of teased it a little bit in the first hour, talking about injuries in the World Baseball Classic. And that's what brings all the fans out there. They want to criticize and say, why uh, are we even doing this? Why are players uh, playing on on a national level when they're supposed to be playing for their teams? And the truth is, injuries happen anyway, shape or form. You know, we talk about injuries that happen in the offseason where Aaron Boone's playing basketball, Lucas Duda's lifting, moving furniture around. Injuries can happen at all times. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you know, God rest their souls. Uh, Steve Olin and Tim Cruz were involved in that accident in the offseason with the, with the boat where uh, Bobby Ojeda was involved and obviously Tim Cruz and Steve Olin passed away from injuries sustained in that. It's just proof that injuries happen in any possible way. And yes, as long as there's competitive games going on, the chances of a player getting injured exist. It's a possibility. It happens. But also, playing two innings in a, in a, in a minor league uh, simulated game 
or playing a couple innings in a major league game and go being in a hurry to get out to let a lot of minor league players play, injuries can happen there too. And, you know, if you're the Yankees, you kind of got the worst of both worlds there with Teixeira getting injured in the World Baseball Classic and Curtis Granderson getting injured in the spring training game. But, you know, stop using this as an excuse. Stop using the World Baseball Classic as, as an excuse to not, to not have it because injuries happen. Injuries happen when you're sitting on a couch watching TV. And I'm sorry. Somebody could have a heart attack. Uh, you know, and 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 that's and in my opinion, dude, that's that's stuff that I just think is a little is a little overblown, and I just think it's sour grapes from fans that just aren't in favor of the World Baseball Classic. And listen, you got the right to not follow it. You got the right to not be a fan of it. You know, if you're a fan of whatever team and you want to go out there and support them unconditionally, and the fact that the World Baseball Classic is going on bothers you, then you have the right to be bothered. But in my opinion, listen, this is something that's got to continue to go on. It's great on a national level. And we're not talking about baseball in the United States. We're talking about baseball in the world. And the game is growing. And you look at a team like Team Italy, a team like the Netherlands, and a lot of other, a lot of other teams that are putting together national teams and have little leagues and stuff involved, to get them more on a serious level, I think is something that's good for the game. And listen, and like I said, you don't have to follow it. You don't have to, you know, have a rooting interest. You know, you could, you, you could just not care. You can watch your spring training games. But the bottom line is these players should have the right to go out there and play for their respective countries if they choose. And I do not think, I absolutely disagree with the fact that Major League Baseball teams, some of them actually feel that they have the right to allow their players to play or not. Any player that wants to play for their respective country, and let's be honest, if, if you're looking at a group of players that are buying to play for Team USA, and they are good enough to be on the team, they should have the right to play, and it should be their choice, not their team's choice. And you may disagree with this wholeheartedly. I, I, I'm, I'm aboard with it. You can feel that way. But any player that wants to play in the World Baseball Classic should. And... It'll make, it, it would obviously, from the World Baseball Classics perspective, it will obviously enhance the competition, but that's not even what I'm talking about. Teams should not have the right to pick and choose which players go because you're, what you're saying is you're saying that certain players can go out there and, 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 and play and risk injury, but others can't. Or, or are, you, are you taking a step back and saying maybe that, you know, it, it's, not, it's not good enough for a great player to play, but a mediocre player to play? I don't, dis I don't agree with that at all. And we're going to put that on hold. And we're going to take in this call. I believe this is Eric Bland. Eric, you there, buddy? Yeah, here. How you doing? Hey, what's going on, man? John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. No problem. All right, man. First of all, we'll start out, man. What are, what are you up to nowadays? Um. Supervising the southeast region for the Philadelphia Phillies uh, amateur scouting. Uh, primarily, my job is to compare players in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, and Puerto Rico, kind of in that region. High school, college kids. Uh, I supervise three area scouts that cover those states, and, and my job for the Phillies is kind of just put those kids in in order of how we how I feel we should uh, like them. It was, it was Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I'm sorry. I must have cut off for a second. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty good, man. Now, is that something that you uh, you had interest in doing while you were playing? 
Uh, yeah, I think it's something that I always thought about, even when I was a young player. Even, even say back in high school, I was always interested in baseball. I knew that I'd go as far as I could with my playing career, but it was something that was going to be with me my whole my whole my whole life. So I coached for a year with us, and then scouting kind of just fits our family. Just allows me just to do the travel and keep keeps my family at home base. Yeah, that sounds pretty good, man. And obviously, as as a major league player, you you established yourself. You had you had a couple couple cups of coffee with the Phillies, and then I think you kind of you, you kind of established yourself on a, as a twenty five man roster guy with the New York Mets. First, tell us a little bit about coming up with the Phillies and you know, your path to the major leagues. Yeah, Phillies number one, just a great organization from top to bottom. Um, I was fortunate enough to get drafted by them out of UCLA, and I played almost almost five close to five years on in my early years with them and kind of couldn't quite break in with them and I got traded to the Reds in 2003, uh, played a month with them and then I got Rule 5 the draft over the New York Mets in the winter of 2003 and I had a good spring training in 2004 and kind of ended up sticking with the club the whole year, I had a good year and went into 2005, um, a little bit of a rough start, we, we, weren't, we weren't meeting up to expectations as a team and I was more like, you know, as a bench player, wasn't wasn't playing that well, and I was one of the guys that kind of they wanted to get some new blood in there, and I got designated for assignment in about June June of that year, and spent the rest of the year in AAA. So spent about a year and a half with the Mets, where I kind of had most of my most of my big league time was with them. So it was a good experience, and you just kind of try to stay there as long as you can because it's such a competitive game, and you know I made the most I made the most out of my abilities and. Was fortunate enough to get about two full years out of, out of five years in the majors. Yeah, absolutely, man. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former major league outfielder Eric Valent. Now, Eric, you know, you, you, you end up uh, sticking around really after the 2005 season. You mentioned that you, you spent, you know, was 79 games in Norfolk after after you ended up getting designated for assignment. Did, did anything hit you as you as you end up, you know, playing in the San Diego Padres organization the following season that you thought it, things might be coming to an end a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Once I, when I got up there in 2004, I established myself, and then in 2005 when I ended up getting set down again. Especially, I think I was 20, 28, or 29. You start to realize that your opportunities start closing a little bit. Where, you know, I had my window to establish myself. I was doing the best I could. I just couldn't quite keep myself there. And that just shows you how tough. You know, it's just a touch a tough game where uh, a guy like myself, where I, I wasn't real consistent with my swing enough to be playing in a bench role. And that, you know, I didn't. That I had some power, hit some home runs in the big leagues, but my uh, wasn't enough to keep me in an everyday lineup, so I was kind of kind of caught in between, and I wasn't really a base player. So my, my my job was supposed to be be a left-handed power hit off the bench and have as many consistent bats as possible. And that's what I strove for. Um, but you know, like I said, it's a tough game, and you try to you try to do the best you can and stay up there as long as you can. And, you know, I felt good about it. that's what I did in my career, and ultimately it, it came to an end. Uh, you know. Sooner than I anticipated as, as a young kid, but hey, I was fortunate enough to live out my dream, and uh, I didn't make it to the Hall of Fame, which is my goal as a kid. But you know, I got there and had a you know a decent career. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Eric Valent. Now let's talk about some uh, some I guess some happier times. You know, talking about early on. Uh, 1994 World Junior Championships. You know, you, you obviously had a had a key role on that team that ends up winning the bronze medal. Tell us a little bit about being involved with that team. Yeah, that, that was kind of like the the beginning of, of really uh, 
a lot of playing baseball for me as, as a kid. 94 was the summer before my senior year of high school. Um, I made the USA junior team, and on that time, on that team, we had future big, league, big leaguers. Randy Wolf was on that team, Eric DeBose, um, Ben Davis, David Ross. So we just had a real good club. It was a great experience to play on that team, and uh, we were in Can- we were played that championships in Canada that year. And we, I believe, we lost. Uh, I think we got the silver medal. I think we lost. We lost to Korea in the in the gold medal game. We ended up capturing the, the silver medal. But that was just a great experience playing against players from Korea, Chinese Taipei, Australia, Canada, Cuba. Um, plus, you know, on our team is kind of the cream of the crop from the United States. So to be able to play at that level and and uh, have some success, knew, I knew that I was on on the right track of where I wanted to be as a major league player. Yeah, no question about it, man. Obviously, you, you know, you were, you were a key component, if not one of the guys, when it came to, uh, you know, you know, you hit, you hit three ninety four with nine runs, nine, nine, uh, nine runs scored, nine RBIs, um, you know, you know, in winning the gold medal so in the uh, nineteen ninety five World Junior Championships. Yeah, yeah, the ninety five team uh, again, a lot of future big leaders off that team: Brad Wilkerson, Jody Garrett, Matt White, um, and exactly that year we were able to capture. The gold medal, that gold medal game was played at Fenway Park. So, again, another great experience. USA Baseball was, you know, helped get me on the map, a first-class organization. I still have a lot of friends that have come up through um, through the program that, you know, I still stay in touch with. The general manager of our junior team that used to run that team is actually the president of USC, of USA Baseball now, Paul Siler. So just a, just a great time in my life and a great experience with a lot of good memories. Yeah, I'm going to jump around a little bit. We'll throw in the whole cycle. Tell us a little bit about hitting for the cycle in uh, 2004 when you were with the Mets. Yeah, yeah, I, was, I hadn't started the game in a while. It was a day game after a night game in Montreal. And first at bat, I remember I hit, hit a hard shot off the first base of the glove and kind of beat the guy to first. So I got the single with my first at bat. Second at bat was a double. Third um, kind of fade towards the left field line. The guy turned out sledge dove and kind of went off his glove, so I was fortunate to get a double there, so I was two for two, and then I hit the home run, my third at bat, and then the score was eight to three going to my fourth at bat, I remember telling the guy, look, if I ever I hit it, I'm just going to keep running, <laughs> run until they tag me, so I roped the uh, shot down the right center, and excuse me, right to the line, I just had kind of just a perfect, perfect timing, just to keep, just to keep going, the score really didn't matter if I got thrown out or not, thrown out or not, and we had a guy at first base, Mike Cameron, which kind of helped me get that triple because at the cutoff, as the cutoff still came in, Nick Johnson and I kind of glanced, glanced home to see Mike Cameron running, and just that slight hesitation, I was able to beat the throw in the third. So that was my triple and uh, the cycle and kind of my, you know, my uh, tidbit in my major league career. Hey, listen, man, you didn't make the Hall of Fame, but at least you hit for a cycle, <laughs> man. I just, you, yeah, there aren't a whole lot of exactly. big league players that said they could do that. No, a lot of luck, you know. <laughs> Listen, Eric, I want to thank you for having some time, man. Best of luck with everything you're doing with the scouting, and hopefully I can get you on the program sometime in the near future. Hey, no problem, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Yep, take care. That was Eric Valent, former outfielder with the Mets, Phillies organization, a little bit with the Cincinnati Reds, of course, now as a scout with the Philadelphia Phillies. And listen, we're going to jump right into some things here. And I think we had, we had a little bit of, a, I think, a continuous call type of thing. And that's what I like. You know, I like to, you know, interact with different people here and there. And, you know, uh, you know, it was great talking with Scott Pose and then with Kevin Bass and then Gary Templeton and now Eric Valent. But now, now we can get into some stuff where you can just hear me for a little bit. And if you can tolerate my voice, I'm just 
going to kind of knock things out, man. Uh, done with the World Baseball Classic. I got, I let my opinion out about it. I like it. Um, I think that players should have the right to play for their respective countries if they want to. And, listen, you may disagree, but, you know, we'll, we'll save it up. Next time I open the phone lines up, we'll let you guys call in. But moving on, you know, we got into a little bit with the Mariners, and I told you I do think the Mariners pitching staff is going to be what kind of drags it out there. But I also think the fact that guys like Jesus Montero, Dustin Ackley, even Kyle Seeger, who was one of their better offensive players last year, I think all have another level that they could get to. And I think if they all do that together, you add in the newcomers like Michael Morse and uh, – you know, even a Raul Banez and Kendry Morales, guys like that that are, are capable of going out there and hitting for more power. And it kind of lengthens the lineup a little bit. And I just think with the parity, if you look at the parity, not only in the American League, but in the American League West, number one, all five, all four of those other teams are going to beat up on the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros are going to get their ass kicked. You're going to go out there. You're going to get your wins against those guys. And I do think the other teams are playing each other enough I think they're going to make it to a point where there's going to be more parity in that division. I mean, I do pick the Angels, leaps and bounds, being better than the other teams. I don't think it's going to be a race like it was last year when you had the Rangers and the Athletics win it at the end and the Angels in it all season. I think the Angels are going to go out there and win that division without a doubt this season. But, you know, the other teams, the A's, the Rangers, I think they've, they've uh, the Rangers in particular have taken steps back, not resigning Josh Hamilton, not replacing his bat in the lineup anywhere. And I, I do think that they have more holes than they had in years past. And I think a team like Seattle can go out there and win their share of games against the Rangers. I think the Oakland Athletics, and I told you, this was the perfect Cinderella story. You're looking at a team that wasn't ready, that had every single thing go right in one season. And I just don't think that's possible to do, especially when you're going out there expecting it. I, I don't see that happening. So you look, you look at that. And I do think the Mariners could be that team that benefits for the Rangers taking a step back and the Athletics not being perfect like they were last year when they won the American League Western Division. So I think you add that up there, and there's wins for the Seattle Mariners to grab. I really think there is. You know, moving forward, we got – the Los Angeles Dodgers have an opportunity right now. And a, a lot of the talk has been out there about their payroll, spending over $200 million this year, uh, $100 million more in payroll than they had last season. But they actually have a chance right now that, to have an eight-man starting rotation if they wanted to. Uh, obviously, it's not going to work out that way. Teams are going to go with they're going to go with five starters. But you start out there with Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke if he's healthy. You go with the the uh, the Rue guy that they got, Hung Jim Rue, for, you know, that's coming up there, and he's going to have a spot in the rotation. Josh Beckett, remember, you acquired him with Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford last year. And you know, you, you got those four guys. You got a fifth starter spot that's essentially. Uh, you got four major league starters competing for one spot. And, you know, assuming, you know, maybe Greinke is out, maybe he doesn't uh, get the ball opening day, maybe he's, he misses a little bit of time, that temporarily uh, will allow another starter to get a spot. But Chad Billingsley, Ted Lilly, Aaron Harang, and Chris Capuano are all, could all fill a lot of spots in major league rotations. There's no question about it. Only one of them is going to get a chance to do the job for the Los Angeles Dodgers this season. Does, does that mean that there's potentially three guys that are on the training block? Absolutely. I think the Dodgers would like to see a team offer something for Ted Lilly 
they, they could probably start out by moving him. Maybe a team that has a fifth starter kind of candidate, maybe a spot that they could throw Ted Lilly in there, and maybe he could have a comeback season. Aaron Harang and Chris Capuano pitched relatively well last season. You know, you look at a couple guys that are, are pretty much journeyman pitchers at this point. They're not going to be considered aces, but they could go out there, and Capuano has shown over the last couple of years and harangue over the last several seasons that they could both be serviceable guys. They could go out there, make their 30 starts, and win between 13 and 16 games. That's in demand with a lot of teams in Major League Baseball. So I wouldn't be surprised to actually see both of these guys, and maybe all three, including Lilly, move before the season starts here. And you're only looking at a couple weeks away. So what teams need starting pitching, you know, the answer is just about everybody. There aren't too many teams that say they have their, their bona fide one through five all set up. And that being said, I don't I don't think I don't I don't I don't think you can rule it out. I think the Dodgers are actively shopping these pitchers. I mean you look at a lot of teams that certainly can use a three or a four starter. Um, even the New York Mets to some extent with Johan Santana potentially starting a season on the disabled list, it's looking more likely at this point than it's ever been. I mean, maybe they would be interested in, in you know, giving up a mid-level player to get a Capuano back. You know, and obviously Chris Capuano did a phenomenal job for the Mets a couple of years ago when it wasn't really expected. He was a guy who was signed on kind of one of those split contracts. Yes, he was given a 40-man roster spot, but a very low base salary with a lot of incentives. And he went out there and he lived up to the contract and beyond. And he, he took that, he parlayed that into a two-year deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And now he's probably not needed now. I think the Mets, if they can, add him up there, bring him in, use him as a number five starter, and get some innings. I, I would be in favor of that from the New York Mets perspective. Other teams out there, I think the Atlanta Braves should be interested. And I know Julio Teheran looks like he's going to get a spot in the rotation. But... Um, maybe if they want to move him down to the minors, I think he, he will be a fit in Atlanta, too. So this is something worth considering. But I, I do find it fascinating that the Los Angeles Dodgers could possibly move three legitimate starting pitchers that can have an impact in the team's rotation before the season starts and still have five. I mean, Kershaw, Greinke, Rue, Beckett, and Chad Billingsley is probably as good of a rotation as you're going to be able to find. And to say that you got three guys after that, is just is just phenomenal, and then it goes back to the point where you're talking about the Los Angeles Dodgers and what they're doing with their money. They're going out there and they say, hey, "We want a starting pitcher. Let's get a, let's get a bunch of them. Let's sign Granky. Let's sign Rue. Oh yeah, we just traded for Beckett. I forgot, but we're going to bring them in. Uh, but what about Lily and Harang and Capuano? Yeah, we'll bring them in too. And the Dodgers certainly have a lot of options. And you know, when you talk about through a major league season, the amount of starting pitchers that you need, obviously, no team is able to go 162 games with just the five starters that they start the season with. This would be ideal if, this, if the Los Angeles Dodgers can do this. Could they save the other three guys? Well, the problem is they're all established pitchers. None of them will willingly pitch in the minor leagues at this stage of their career because they all know that they could compete at the major league level. So you can't necessarily put these guys in reserve. You can't put them on a back burner and say, hey, we'll use you when you need Maybe, maybe you get away with one guy that you can kind of use in that hybrid uh, uh, long reliever spot starter kind of thing. But from, from that point forward, you're going to have to cut bait with the other two guys. And that's where the Dodgers are at with Harang and Capuano and Ted Lilly. 
But moving on, we're going to get into a little bit of this date in baseball history. And I like to get into that because, you know, obviously BaseballReference.com, I throw them a shout-out all the time because of the, the amount of information that's there and the fact that I research a lot. I use their website a lot. So thanks to BaseballReference.com, we got this date in baseball history. And 1953, and today... You know, the, the, today is the 21st when the show is playing, but today is actually the 18th when I'm recording the show. So, uh, you know, glad to straighten that all out again, like for the fifth time, but whatever. The Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee, and that was the first professional baseball franchise to move since 1901. So you're looking at 52 years before a team changed cities. But the Boston Braves became, of course, the uh, the Milwaukee Braves, where they remained until they ended up going to Atlanta, where they stand nowadays. In 1981, Carlton Fisk, after a, a clause in his contract allowed him to become a free agent after all those years with the Boston Red Sox, signs with the Chicago White Sox. Today, in 1981, a five-year deal for $2.9 million, and obviously looking you know, at the rate of salaries back then, it was a, obviously a huge contract, you know, considering what players were getting paid at the time. And, of course, Fisk ends up spending the rest of his whole thing career with the Chicago White Sox. And the Red Sox, you know, to this day, look back and kind of wonder what happened because this was a guy that they expected to wear the, that, uh, that red in Boston and be part of potentially a team that could go back to the postseason and maybe win, win a World Series. I mean, let's let's realize if there wasn't the glitch in the contract that allowed Fisk to become a free agent, then maybe, just maybe, he's part of that team in 1986. And you add Carlton Fisk to that lineup of what they had with, uh, of course, Dwight Evans and Jim Rice, and you know Marty Barrett and Wade Boggs and all those guys. And remember, Evans and Rice were holdovers from when uh, Fisk was still there. But you add Wade Boggs, you add Roger Clemens, all the talent that they had on that team, Carlton Fisk would have been that final piece to, without a doubt, win a World Series. And I, and I think, I think, you know, and obviously this is way going, getting way too hypothetical. And, but Carlton Fisk being on the '86 Red Sox would be a guaranteed slam dunk victory for the Red Sox. They would have their first World Series since 1918, and it wouldn't have gone. You know, they're 18 years before they before they uh, eventually won the World Series in 2004. But once again, Carlton Fisk signs with the White Sox today in 1981. Uh, Charlie Lau, uh, the longtime hitting coach for the Kansas City Royals, passed away on this day in 1984. And, of course, Lau was known for what he did in developing a young George Brett in the 70s. And he did a, you know, he did a phenomenal job. He was, he, he, he didn't have as long of a career. He wasn't a dominant player when he played in his own right. But his hitting style is certainly used in his game a lot today. And you see the way a lot of things go with, you know, players learning stuff. And you got to give him credit for what he did as a hitting coach. And of course, he died certainly uh, way before his time of cancer at age 50 in 1984. A year later, in 1985. Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle were actually reinstated into Major League Baseball by new commissioner Peter Uberoth. Uh, Bowie Kuhn, who was obviously the commissioner before Uberoth, had suspended both players indefinitely because of their involvement with a casino in Atlantic City. 
And obviously, you know about gambling and baseball, the whole 1919 Black Sox and throwing games and stuff like that. Obviously, they have a very strong rule, which, uh, you know, a couple of years later would take the baseball life of Pete Rose. And those players were not allowed. Mays and Mantle, both Hall of Famers, obviously, were not allowed to associate themselves with baseball because of their involvement with this casino in Atlantic City. And uh, Uberoth ends up saying, listen, as long as they, they, they don't promote what they're doing, they, they are allowed to affiliate themselves with a major league franchise if they choose. So it was good for baseball to get two of its all-time greats, obviously. I mean, if you're, you're talking to top ten best baseball players of all time, these guys are certainly touching the top five with Mays maybe uh, ranking maybe, in my opinion, at four or five. But Mantle certainly is a top ten player when you're talking about the best players, position players to ever play in this game. And imagine baseball. Imagine how baseball would have been if these guys were not allowed to be involved anymore. I mean, Mantle, of course, before his before his death, you know, you talk about a guy that's not allowed to associate himself with baseball, no more old-timers games, stuff like that. And then, of course, Mays and everything that he does still living strong right now. Uh, you know, it, baseball would not be the same without including those guys. And just understand that for a short period of time, they were not included. And I think that has to be looked at that way. Hey, is this Gary? Yes, this is Gary. Hey, what's going on, man? John Pielli, Pass Ball Show on TRL Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Uh, no problem, man. Hey, listen, man, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, start, starting out. You're, uh, you know, obviously, you, you know, your father, you know, Gary, you know, Gary Templeton, had a very successful major league career. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about coming up, you know, in the baseball environment and then, you know, getting into, base, you know, professional baseball yourself. Um, well, I mean, you know, it was me and my brother. I have a brother that's three years younger than me. And, okay. you know, we just grew up around the ballpark, you know. It was come home, do your homework, and then we were going to watch Dad play. And, I mean, back then it was called the Jack Murphy Stadium. Um, I think it's called Qualicom now. But, you know, we used to just run around the stadium, you know, run through the locker rooms with some of the other uh, major league kids and, you know, just have a good time watching our parents play, you know. And then, uh, you know, me and my brother, we would play against each other every day in baseball or basketball. So, you know, I've always been competitive, you know, sports-wise. You know, just always enjoyed the game, you know, and being around it, you know. And, I mean, to me, it was it was always normal because, I mean, that's the only thing I ever knew. <laughs> no, absolutely, you know, man. Just, just how I grew up, you know, so. Yeah, I'm sure it helped having a, you know, a father that was that good. I'm sure he got you, he got you right into things. Did you, uh, did you get any chance as a, as a younger, as a, as a child to kind of get, get a look at the clubhouse and stuff like that as, you know, as, as dad was playing? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, during the, the game, we'd be all in the clubhouse. <laughs> you know, we'd, um, there's a spot in Jack Murphy Stadium where you could stand right behind home plate and you can see through it. You go in the locker room. You know, I mean, the locker room, you know, in, in that part of the stadium was our, our second home, especially during the summertime. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, now you end up getting drafted yourself a couple, you know, a couple times. Looks like you end up going into the uh, the Anaheim Angels organization. Tell us a little bit about the start. You know, at age 20, 21, 22, and you know how, how you felt things were going on as a professional ball player. Um, well, you know, it's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed my time with the Angels. You know, I was you know trying to you know follow my dream and be a professional ball player. You know, I felt I always felt I had the ability. And, um, I mean, definitely the knowledge to play the game. 
I think sometimes at a young age, you know, people or kids, you know, they don't realize that that's their opportunity. You know, like whether you get one bat in front of them at a scout or, you know, you get 500 at bats, you know, you, that's your one opportunity to make something happen, you know. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I fully took advantage of my opportunities. Um, not that I didn't play hard. I mean, I was always in shape. I played hard, you know as much as I could, but, you know, I was a late-round draft pick, so I play every fourth day, you know, and it's tough to, you know, establish anything like that, you know, getting less than 100 bats a year, you know, when I was with the Angels. So, um, I mean, that's the part I wish I would have had more focus, knowing that I was only going to play once every four days, you know. Um, when I actually did get released <laughs> at the spring training in a 01, I think I was hitting 400 and I was playing second base and, you know, playing well, you know, so, but, you know, everybody's got their own little sob story. No, nah, no, listen, man, I, as, you, as you're playing through through all the all, all these different games, you're playing once every fourth day, you're also playing a lot of different positions, you know, you're playing games in the outfield, you're playing games at second base, shortstop, third base, uh, did that have any impact on you, where, you know, you, you, where, you know, let's say, you know, you don't know when you're going to be in the lineup, but when you're in the lineup, you don't know where you're going to be playing? Yeah, I was... I was in college, I played center field. High school, I played nothing but short. College, all I played was center field. So I hadn't really played a lot of infield for the previous three years, and they drafted me as a second baseman. So I was trying to regain those skills that, you know, I somewhat lost because, you know, I hadn't took ground balls in three years. You know, so that was tough. But I always felt, um, you know, I'm a 5'9 outfielder. I was running a 6'5, uh, 60. So. Um, I mean, those guys are everywhere. You know, I felt like I probably had a better chance if I could get some time in the infield. So I always wanted to play the infield um, once I got the pro ball. You know, because outfielders are a diamond desert. And, I mean, at that point, you're talking about the 2000s. You know, outfielders like me at that point were hitting 30, 40 jacks, too. And I wasn't <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> yeah, so you figure your your biggest asset was probably your speed, right? And you know, that was like that was the kind of player you were. You know, get on base, steal base. You know, go first to third, stuff like that. I mean, definitely, it was my speed, the ability to get on base and, and score runs, and you know, cause havoc. And I mean, I had range. Um, you know, my arm—it wasn't great arm, but it was above average. So I mean, defensively, especially in the outfield, I was I was fine. Now, did you did you feel you were you were treated any differently, either better or worse, because your father was an established major leaguer? Um, I think some people do. Um, my experience with uh, the Angels, I don't think they did. You know, they treated me like any other player. But I would say, just in general, I mean, I think people have a, a certain expectation of you, or you know, they automatically don't like you because they think that you've been, you know, privileged to. You know, certain things, which isn't entirely false, but, I mean, you know, he, I had a uh, father-son relationship just like all the other kids. You know, I didn't listen to my dad. <laughs> and, I mean, truthfully, I mean, I wasn't around him until I got older, until he stopped uh, coaching and stopped playing. I mean, and that wasn't until I was in high school to when I would actually, you know, see him on a regular basis. And now you ended up uh, playing a little bit in the independent league, pretty much from 01 to 03, and then from uh, five to seven. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience and how you how you felt playing in the, in the different independent leagues. Um, the independent, I liked the independent leagues. I mean, that's where I really got an opportunity to play. You know, and 
show what I could do on the baseball field. Um, it's a tough, tough business the independent game because they're not into developing players or waiting around to see, you know, if you're going to pan out. It's like you come in, if you start off slow for the first week, you're gone. You know, you ready to play right away, which is a lot different from the affiliate ball. You know, they'll work with you. You know, they'll, they'll teach you. When you get to independent ball, you know, it's how good are you right now? Can you help me right now? If not, then we're going to find somebody else. Now, this may come a little, I don't know, I don't know, but maybe from my perspective looking at it, it may come full circle a little bit. You know, with, with uh, Dad getting a job as the Newark Bears manager, you got any advice for, for Dad as far as, you know, being involved in the independent game? Maybe something that he wasn't really involved in as a – you know, as a pro player? Um, actually, he's been managing independent ball for seven or eight years wow. now. Okay. He, he started um, in Gary, Indiana with his first uh, independent managing job, and then um, and I actually played for him there. Okay. And that was the first time that I was actually around him all the time, and he will attest it was probably both of our worst summers. <laughs> <laughs> But um, he coached there for our two years. He managed there. He managed in the um, it used to be the Golden Baseball League in Orange County for three years. Uh-huh. Uh, Chico for one and Hawaii for one. So, I mean, I still get all my, you know, managerial uh, stuff from him. You know, if I have questions, I call him. He's not quite calling me for anything yet. <laughs> so, you got any aspirations again of uh, you know staying involved with the game? Yeah, I'm the um, the manager of the Hilo Stars. Uh, it's a new independent league, and uh, it's called the Pacific Association. There's uh, two teams in Hawaii, two teams in the Bay Area, and um, on our schedule we play against some Japanese independent teams, and uh, we do some interleague play with uh, some of the other independent league teams on the West Coast. All right, man, sounds good, man. Well, listen, I wish you the best of luck, man, and hopefully I can get you on the program sometime in the near future. Well, once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, NTR Radio Network. Uh, you know, want to move into something I was thinking about the other day. I actually haven't gotten in the process of writing this yet. But the 1941 Los Angeles Dodgers are a team that, in my opinion, stands out. And, yes, why would you pick the 1941 Dodgers? You know, you talk about all the teams that they had in the late 40s with Jackie Robinson, the 50s with Duke Snyder, of course, the 60s when they moved to L.A. And, you know, after they moved in 1957 and 58, they became the Los Angeles Dodgers. But the 1941 team really is the one that goes, in my opinion, as the answer to this question, which one of these teams does not belong? Because you look at the, the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 30s, you know, into the late 30s with Casey Stengel as the manager, and you realize that they weren't really good for a while. The Stengel years, I mean, you know, they, 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 were, they were a bad team. And they end up moving up. Of course, you know, you remember in 1920, if you can remember that back that further, or if your research mind allows you to, the 1920 Dodgers, the Brooklyn Robins at the time, end up losing to the Cleveland Indians in the World Series. And what stands out about that is the fact that uh, that was their only World Series appearance. That was their only postseason appearance to that point. So 21 years later, 1941, a team that has Pee Wee Reese. Is, and Pee Wee Reese, in my opinion, is really the only guy that stands out from that point. I mean, the rest of the players, they hadn't come up yet. There's no Jackie Robinson at this point. There's no Roy Campanella. There's no Gil Hodges. There's no... Duke Snyder. These guys were still too young to really make an impact or even be up at the, at the point of this team. But you got 
a catcher in Mickey Owen. And obviously, remember what happened in the 41 World Series and the ball getting through his legs and stuff like that. And Mickey Owen had a very good career uh, playing from 37 to 54. But, you know, he's, he's known as the GOAT for, you know, the ball that ended up going through his legs, allowing the run to score. And obviously, you know, you look at a team that, uh, let's, let's be honest, doesn't have too many named players on it. Pee Wee Reese, of course, is known. Leo, Leo DeRocher, the manager, and, of course, the player manager at that point because he played a little bit of shortstop, is known as a face to that team. Pete Reiser, a 22-year-old outfielder, ends up having uh, impact on some of the later Dodger teams. Dickie, Dixie Walker, who was known as, as, as getting that petition together to uh, you know try to get Jackie Robinson out of baseball or out of playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers because he was black. But... You know, you look at the amount of the players that played in this team, it really wasn't. It, this team, the 1941 version, really had no resemblance of what ends up happening later in the decade when they, they of course, played the Yankees again in 1947 in the World Series and 49 and 52 and 53. And, of course, they beat the Yankees in 55 and lose again in 56. So you're looking at, you're looking at a team that really didn't have any relationship to the other ones. But a couple of key players did play on that team. Obviously, didn't have impact. But uh, Paul Weiner, a Hall of Fame uh, outfielder, who obviously is known for his time with the Pittsburgh Pirates, played a little bit on that team. He didn't finish the season on the team. We talked about DeRocher uh, being kind of a part-time player. Uh, was, what, 12 for 42 that season. But, you know, you look at some other guys that ended up having impacts on that team. A couple pitchers. Uh, one one guy that, that that's uh, that's notable didn't didn't play a lot. Actually, got two games that year. Ends up finishing his career with the San, the, uh, the the Giants a couple of years later. And that's Van Mungo. And Van Lingle Mungo is obviously uh, the name of a song that was done because because of the guy. He was known as a guy that was was very uh, very temperamental. Was known as a guy that was was uh, was kind of kind of crazy. And he ends up pitching a couple games for that team that year. Bill Swift who was known for what he did in the 20s and the 30s, made a couple of appearances for them that season. But, you know, you look at their starting rotation, Freddie Fitzsimmons was really the most established or known pitcher that was on that staff. And, you know, he, he was 39 at the time. He went 6-1 and one with a 207 ERA. So you're looking at this team, and I, I just find it very interesting, the fact that the 41 Los Angeles, I'm sorry, Brooklyn Dodgers, were, were, had no real relationship to the team that ends up going to the World Series and losing to the Yankees in 1947. So we're glad to touch on that for a little bit. But, um, yeah, listen, want to thank everybody for having some time, being part of the show today. Um, you know, want to thank Scott Pose, want to thank Kevin Bass, Gary Templeton, Eric Valent, everybody for being involved in the show today. So hopefully uh, you guys enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy my time down in Florida. We'll be back live with you on the, uh, the 28th, which will be uh, Thursday from 5 to 7. Uh, I'll, I'll probably have some more interviews, a bunch of stuff going on with spring training. So, uh, once again, thanks for having some time today. Thanks for being part of the Passball Show on EMTR Radio Network. And we'll definitely get back with you sometime in the near future. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Yeah, yeah.